0: I listen to The Diaries because it sparks ideas for new adventures. Whether it is an episode about an epic adventure or a backyard micro adventure, I start thinking about my next adventure. I'm inspired by the people and their stories to go a little farther and dig a little deeper. If you want to add more spark to your adventurous ideas, consider subscribing to The Diaries Plus today. I'm Crystal, a longtime listener from the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina.
1: Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the Diaries Plus. It's been awesome, and you're powering the show as we move into the future. If you're interested in subscribing today, there's a link in the show notes. Please join. Now, on to the show. Hey, so if you're listening to this, I'm guessing you've had the moment in the outdoors. You know what I'm talking about. It's that moment when you're out in a beautiful place and everything becomes clear. It's like a hook gets set inside of who you are and for a moment, the lights go on and inside it, it's a staggering moment of clarity. It's like a nightscape being lit up by a bolt of lightning and we get a little window into who we are. I think most of us at one point or another have had moments like that. My friend Josh Ewing is no different.
0: I was walking out Kind of a sidewalk in the sky to get to an ancient dwelling. And the cliff fell off 600 feet on either side.
1: He's on this tiny little rock ledge in southeastern Utah. He's kind of scooching along it.
0: And it's getting narrower and narrower. You don't know what you're really going to see. And then you turn the corner and you see this 800-year-old cliff dwelling, still perfectly preserved in a place that only climbers would go. And... That moment was a moment that I just knew I got to check this area out in a lifetime sort of detail level. I think there's a time in a lot of people's lives where you got to decide what you want to be when you grow up. And sometimes some of us get there really late in life like midlife crisis style. That's certainly what happened to me. When I was living in Salt Lake and working a ton, making six figure salary, I didn't always feel like I really had a purpose, like a reason that I was doing what I was doing other than to make money so I could come climbing in Southern Utah.
1: Purpose, they're the darndest things those purposes. You never know where you're going to find them and when you find them, look out. Things have a way of getting pretty crazy. Today, we launch a new series on the diaries, Endangered Spaces, stories about people like you or me who were passionate about the outdoors and accidentally found themselves in the middle of a fight for the long-term protection of a place they loved. Josh was just a climber, a smart guy who'd been working successfully in communications and marketing in Salt Lake. He loved climbing in the weekends. And while he'd worked for a Democratic mayor of Salt Lake, he wasn't particularly liberal or politically active. And then in the course of a few years, he found himself not just as a witness, but as a key player in a historic struggle for a forgotten corner of southeast Utah.
2: Naivete is probably a kind word for what I thought. I thought everyone would kind of get together around this special place that we all want to preserve for future generations. Like, how hard is it to get people to agree on that, right? But it turns out when you involve political ideology and long-held mistrust of the federal government, it's a lot harder than you think.
1: I'm Fitzgahal. Welcome to Bears Ears. Indian Creek crack climbing mecca if you climb you know what i'm talking about if you don't climb then let me fill you in this is all about climbing cracks these are crazy features that snake down the brown sandstone walls it's like god took a high-powered laser he borrowed from dr evil and cleaved the walls in precise finger to body size cuts it literally looks like somebody sort of just ran a skill saw down them When Josh moved to Salt Lake City, he fell in love with crack climbing. He'd work, and then he'd make the long drive to the creek, which is about four, five hours away. He started ticking off the classic desert tower climbs in the area, then the less classic ones, and then the ones that no one had climbed before. He kind of went deep into climbing. And that's when he stumbled into Cedar Mesa. He and his wife, Kirsten, were on their first road trip through southern Utah. They were driving, it got dark, and they pulled off the freeway to crash for the night.
0: Woke up in the morning, and there's a Wingate crack buttress right above me, and I'm thinking, I wonder if this has been climbed before. Where am I? The next day, we ended up going for a hike and just getting blown away by the archeology, span by the rock art, by the dwellings in the cliffs. It was something that both my wife and I really got intrigued about. And so between the fact that there was climbing that nobody was doing and archeology, span it was kind of the perfect little place. We kept coming back over and over again.
1: For folks who have visited the Bears Ears region, this is kind of a standard story. It's a landscape that at first glance isn't quite as photogenic as Canyonlands to the north or Escalante and the Grand Canyon to the west. It combines a variety of different desert landscapes. There's the incredible winding canyons dotted with ruins and pictograph panels of Grand Gulch, the broad, high desert canyons of Dark Canyon area, the monuments of the Valley of the Gods, the incredible Comb Ridge running smack through the center for 80 miles all the way into the reservation and Monument Valley. And of course, there's Indian Creek for the climbers. This place, it reveals itself to those who are patient, and that's what makes it intoxicating. Over the years that followed, Josh would drive out to Cedar Mesa once or twice a year, then every six months, turned into every six weeks. Then the trips became every two weeks, sometimes to climb, but sometimes to explore some of the hundred thousand archaeological sites scattered throughout the area. And as Josh started to see more and more of the ancient cliff dwellings, the climbing trips turned into hikes back into the history of the Puebloan people who inhabited the region for thousands of years, but mysteriously left the area in the late
0: 1200s. It turned a corner for me in my life where I was so focused on climbing as a sport, as a number grade. And now all of a sudden, it had nothing to do with number grades, but it was just as a way of getting me to see a place that maybe a lot of other people have never seen.
1: Eventually, Josh got sick of the 70 to 80 hour work weeks. He didn't want to do it anymore just so he could drive 12 hours every other weekend to be in the place he really wanted to be. So Josh and Kirsten moved to Bluff, Utah. Population, 250.
0: When we moved from Salt Lake down to Bluff, life really slowed down for a while. It allowed me to get some perspective. I didn't have the stress. I didn't have the 60, 80 hours a week of work responsibilities. I just had to pay a very small rent
1: payment. Bluff is definitely a small town and it wasn't long before some of the longtime folks wondered whether Josh might be able to help them out. Many of them had come for the same reason as Josh. They were in love with the landscape. They were in love with the history. They had a small not-for-profit called Friends of Cedar Mesa. It needed running. Josh had a pretty serious resume. And the pressure from visitation, looting, and encroaching plans for leasing oil and gas had everybody in Bluff thinking that their little not-for-profit had to get serious. Josh seemed like an opportunity.
0: I was at first pretty hesitant to run an organization that's so small and such a remote place that has a reputation for being anti-environmentalist. But when I saw what needed to happen to protect Cedar Mesa, to get this area in a place where it could be passed on to future generations, I thought, if not me, who's gonna do this work? Who's gonna really take Friends of Cedar Mesa and try and make a professional, powerful organization. This is my opportunity to make a difference. This is a place where I have heart in what I want to do.
1: Oddly, part of the reason the Bears Ears region hasn't had more formal protection like a conservation area or a recreation area, a monument or national park placed on it before is that a lot of different types of people love it. A lot of them. And they have their opinions about the land and about the other people who love the land. There's three main groups you need to know about. First, there's our little recreation community. We're the newest people. The climbers, the rafters, and the backpackers. And really, we have not been there that long at all, period. We are the newest stakeholders. And you know who we are because you're listening to this podcast. The oldest stakeholders are the tribes of the Southwest who descended from the Puebloan people. For thousands of years... For time immemorial, there's been Native people using these areas. This is Jason Nez.
0: They were the first ones around here.
1: And Riley Belanqua. Jason is Navajo and Riley is Hopi. Thirteen Native tribes trace their ancestry back to Bears Ears. Archaeologists have dated most Native sites in the area back at least 700 years. Some are as old as 12,000 B.C., over 14,000 years old. Here's Riley again.
0: To visit... Sights of our ancestors is all inspiring to me. As I grow older, as I look into the past, as I think about who these people were, it makes me whole, it makes me stronger.
2: All the things they left, every little pottery shirt, every bit of rock art, even the way they stacked to the rocks, That's them talking to us way across time. And I can look at these pottery shirts and I can tell you who they were.
1: I can tell you where they came from. And I can tell you where they went. For years, one federal law enforcement officer has overseen all of Bears Ears. Almost 3,000 square miles for one person. Use of ATVs and other motorized vehicles off of established roads and looting and vandalism of ancient sites went essentially unchecked. Here's Jason again. When these things are destroyed and damaged, that's cutting off a fingertip. That's cutting off a finger. When these places are destroyed, that's us native people being destroyed. In addition to degradation by looting and vandalism, the tribes, they also worried about the ever-looming threat of proposed oil and gas leases, mines, and quarries on a landscape they still use to conduct ceremonies, collect herbs, medicine, food, and wood. To them, the landscape is a living place, and access to it is paramount.
2: My name is Willie Gray Eyes, a member of the Navajo Nation. We pray out here.
1: It's our church. It's our medicine cabinet.
2: My name is Davis Filford. I don't want to see oil well pumping here. I don't want nothing to contaminate barriers. You know, this earth, we want to protect this, the whole thing, the environment, just the way it is, the beauty of it. Our culture is just right here.
1: There's also another set of key stakeholders. In the 1870s, leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints called upon their disciples to embark on a daunting, brutal journey east from central Utah, across the Colorado River, through Canyon Country, to settle what is now called San Juan County. As you might imagine, navigating a train of 83 covered wagons and a thousand hungry horses and cattle through the barren maze of sandstone cliffs and slots proved brutal. If you actually look at where they went on a map, it's insane. But the pioneers believed that they had been called upon for this mission by the Lord himself and could not turn around. Even when going forward meant setting up camp for six weeks to hand-carve away a notch, or a hole, as they called it in the sandstone cliffs, wide enough for their wagons to pass through. It literally meant driving their wagons down a steep 2,000 vertical ramp, narrow chute, to a place where they could ferry across the Colorado River. By the time they reached the first patch of viable farmland on the San Juan River, A journey they thought would take six weeks had taken six months. The Hole in the Rock expedition parked their wagons and established Bluff City. Over the next 15 years, many moved north to establish Monticello and Blanding. Generations now have been born and raised in these towns. For these people, this is home. And this land, it's helped them support their family for generations. First with farms and ranches, later with uranium mines, limestone quarries, and oil and gas leases or excavating ancient sites for archeologists dispatched to southern Utah by major universities out east. For many of these people, hunting for pottery and arrowheads in the Red Rock Canyons was not looting or vandalism, but a job or a family activity, something you did with your kids. It's part of their Western culture, and when outsiders come and tell them when they should be doing with the land, they get defensive. When the BLM tried to limit ATV use and recapture canyon outside of Blanding, the community responded. County Commissioner Phil Lyman called the Bundys, that's right, the Bundys, the people from Nevada that took over the wildlife refuge later on in Oregon, they called the Bunnies to a rally and proceeded to lead a parade of ATVs over archaeological sites in the canyon. Lyman would actually spend time in jail for his actions. At the heart of the matter, all three groups, Native Americans, people from Blanding, Monticello, and the recreation people, they all cherish this landscape. They want to continue to use it like they always have. Just what that means to each group is markedly different. By the time Josh came to Bluff, there was consensus, though, that something should be done. In 2010, the Navajo formed a committee called Utah BDNBK and approached Senator Bob Bennett about increased protection for Bears Ears. Bennett stepped in to try to mediate a solution between the conservationists and those in favor of economic development. But Bennett failed to win re-election, and negotiations stagnated. Three years later, in 2013, Congressman Rob Bishop proposed a bill called the Public Lands Initiative, or PLI as it's often referred to. That bill, it promised once again to strike a grand bargain between the various interests. It was around this time that Josh found himself at the table in the conversation over the fate of Bears Ears.
2: There were a lot of good-hearted people that worked on that process who... Shared their thoughts, were willing to compromise. The staff members working on it were doing so in earnest. In fact, I remember looking at a copy of a draft bill and thinking this could work. It could have helped energy developers have an easier path to developing energy, it could have helped the state have better developable lands to help pay for school kids' education.
1: But what Josh and many others didn't know at the time was that the bill that they thought held so much promise, which they'd worked so hard to negotiate, the congressmen hadn't actually touched it yet, just their staff. And once the PLI got into the hands of that delegation, into the hands of the actual elected officials, well, they had a different agenda from the one that their constituents had negotiated amongst themselves.
2: It's sad to say, but I think compromise is becoming a lost art and listening to someone else is becoming a liability and I think in the end the PLI suffered from that like it, it started to get too reasonable and there wasn't going to be the red meat in it for the base voters of the politicians who were advancing it and what happened was is when the representatives themselves got out the red ink They had to put a bunch of red meat in there. They had to put a bunch of poison pills in there. That means it couldn't have the support from the conservation community.
1: The tribes had had enough of negotiating, and instead started to band together for a different approach. In October of 2015, an intertribal coalition composed of five tribes, the Navajo, the Hopi, the Zuni, the Ute, and the Mute Mountain Ute, approached the Obama administration with a proposal for a national monument. A national monument managed by representatives from the tribes. This would be the first time in history that the tribes set aside long-standing feuds or cultural differences to come together to protect a precious landscape. It was Josh's job to take the Secretary of Interior, Sally Jewell, around the canyons. He tried to escape to the desert to avoid the 80-hour work weeks in Salt Lake City, but now Josh found himself flying to DC, returning home, building Friends of Cedar Mesa into a legit operation with staff. He was working his ass off, but it felt all right. It wasn't sustainable, but for this moment, it was what had to be done.
0: Fox News, election alert, Pennsylvania goes to Donald Trump. Mm. Donald
1: Trump is the president of the United States. Many held out hope that Utah's representatives would ultimately release a version of the PLI that had originally been negotiated. Their thinking was that if they did that, they could probably avoid federal involvement in a mandate from President Obama with a monument. Then, November 8th happened. Donald J. Trump, the son of a Queens millionaire, defied all conventional wisdom and all expectations. The PLI went nowhere in Congress. On December 28th, Obama granted the tribal coalition's request. He signed a proclamation that established Bears Ears as a national monument. For the tribes, it was a major victory. Recreation groups and conservation groups heralded it too. Here's Lyle Balenqua from the Hopi tribe, who also guides raft trips on the San Juan River in the summer.
2: I think what the monument does is just add one more layer of protection. It's not that we're working with the government to put a wall around it and deny access to it. We want to be a part of the enrichment of the interpretation and the preservation of this landscape so that it benefits not just the tribes, but it's benefiting the general American public as a whole who comes to enjoy these areas. Originally, the tribes had asked for 1.9 million acres,
1: but it was reduced in size to 1.3. A nod to the oil and gas, but the monument would be managed, as requested, by the tribes. For a time, the land would be protected.
2: When President Obama made the monument, my primary feeling was just one of relief. The worst case scenario would have been after all of this debate, all of this exposure to this place, all of the new people that will be visiting Bears Ears, for there to be no change, for there to be no monument, and nothing on the ground to protect the area.
1: In January, Utah state leaders voted in a non-binding resolution to ask Trump to rescind the monument. Governor Herbert signed it and ratified it. Congressional Representative Jason Chaffetz, who also coincidentally campaigned on the fact that he would not support Trump and also heads the congressional committee that handles ethic violations, spearheaded the pressure on Trump. The outdoor recreation industry also stepped into the ring. Patagonia, the North Face, REI, and the Outdoor Industry Association tried unsuccessfully to change Governor Herbert's mind. In protest, the outdoor retailer Trade Show, which brings in about $45 million a year to Salt Lake, announced it would plan to find a new home once its contract was up.
2: No president has ever abolished a national monument created by another president. So an action to totally get rid of bear's ears would be completely unprecedented and certainly challenging the court.
1: Presidents have decreased the size of national monuments before, but in the case of Bears Ears, shrinking the boundaries of the monument, even a small amount would mean losing protection for archaeological sites or other important resources that were specifically named in the proclamation, and a very part of the Antiquities Act, the tool that President Obama used to create the monument. So basically, it would violate the law. If a Trump administration tried to downsize the monument, most likely it would land in court.
2: The sad part of that is what happens to the land in the limbo between when a decision is made or not.
1: The federal agencies in charge of actually establishing the monument would probably hesitate to start work with the fate of the land still in the hands of the court.
2: Which means that the land could just continue to be damaged by a lack of resources to manage visitation. And all the promotion of the Bears Ears to get it protected is going to bring all sorts of new visitors to the area, most that don't know how to visit respectfully. They've never really interacted with archaeology in a backcountry setting. So while my guess is that Bears Ears monument will be upheld in the courts over the long haul, there's a lot of damage that could happen in the meantime.
1: Looking back on it all, you know, like your your choice to uproot your life in Salt Lake City, trade one set of really hard work for another set of really hard work with some time behind you. How do you view that choice you, you made to move to Bluff now?
2: You know, the decision I made to move to this little teeny town in southeastern Utah and become a conservationist I I wouldn't second guess it for a moment. I had a friend of mine ask me the other day, he's like, you needed a vacation. Where do you want to go on vacation? I said, well, I want to go to Grand Gulch, and then I want to go to Slickhorn, and then, hmm, how about Dark Canyon? My friend just laughed at me because he's like, well, that's all the area that you're working on protecting. Like, isn't that work? And I'm like, no, those are the places I care about most in the world. Why would I spend a bunch of money to go someplace else that's not as cool? Last weekend, I got to get out on Cedar Mesa and go into a canyon that I had never been in before. I got to see some remarkable artifacts, some incredibly well-preserved ancient dwellings, and it was a, a refreshing reminder of why we're working so hard to protect this place. I mean, it, there's just no other place like it. The Bears Ears National Monument now stands in a place where it needs champions, it needs everyday people to stand up for it now more than ever and people across the country there's a real extreme faction that would prefer that anyone who doesn't live in utah shouldn't have any say about how the public lands in the state are managed but if folks from all over the united states don't get involved with this discussion over the next couple of years we could be in a scenario where It's all state by state, and it's all what the governor and legislator of that state want to do. If they want to sell it off, they sell it off. If they want to frack it all, they can frack it all. And Bears Ears is a a case study, but it just shows that anybody who cares about public land needs to speak up now more than they ever have before. And I hope they speak up for Bears Ears, because this is an internationally significant place. But if you don't speak up for Bears Ears, speak up for some place that you care about.
1: I hope we reach our destination soon. No matter what this journey costs. The Diaries is made possible by the good people of Patagonia. This past year, the crew at Duct Tape Them Beer, we all partnered with Patagonia to go down to Bear's Ears. Working with new tools from Google, we created a 360 virtual reality experience. So, even if you can't physically travel down to Bear's Ears right now, you can go climb the North Six Shooter with Tommy Caldwell, trail run through the Valley of the Gods with Luke Nelson, and explore other gems from your new national monument. And also, take action. And tell Ryan Zinke that you care about this place. Join the fight for Bears Ears at Patagonia.com Bears Ears. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks, makers of an easy-to-use roof rack and hitch rack that can carry up to four bikes to the trailhead in style. Check out their lineup of KuatRacks.com. Kuat, because you love your bike. We are thrilled to announce our newest supporting sponsor, Vossen Brewing Company. Vossen just poured the concrete for their brewery in Richmond, Virginia. This summer, they'll start pouring pints of their balanced, seasonal, Belgian-influenced beers, perfect for long days outside. Check them out at VossenBrewing.com. Glad to have you, Vossen. Support for the Diaries also comes from you. To celebrate our 10th birthday, if you donate now, we'll send you your very own dirtbag diaries theme song ringtone that's right there's been so many requests for the theme song to be downloaded and jacob and Nice have agreed to turn it into a ringtone so you can have the theme song on your phone pretty sick because i have it on my phone go to dirtbagdiaries.com and click the button in the upper right hand corner to pledge your support thank you so much to everyone who has donated already Thank you, Josh, for all your crucial work to protect Bears Ears and for taking the time to share your stories with us. Those interviews were recorded over the course of three years. And a huge, heartfelt thank you to all the tribe members who took the time to share why this precious landscape means so much to them. Music today from Kai Engel, MC Kola, Bradley Carter, published the Quest, and Jason Tyler Burton. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or used with permission from the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Nice Kodo composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, DirtbagDiaries.com. This episode was produced by Jen Altschul and me, Fitzcahal. We wrote it together. Thank you, Jen. Becca Call is our executive director. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.